Well, good morning, everybody. We are first week of Advent here, finished off our discipleship series and uh, getting into the Christmas season. And today uh, it's uh, the weekend or it's the Sunday of hope. And uh, hope is an interesting thing. Wendy and I uh, recently rewatched last year's NFL playoffs for the Denver Broncos, okay? So we're Peyton Manning quarterback fans, and uh, it was going to be his last year playing, most likely at that time, we believed it was probably his last year, and the the Broncos had made it to the playoffs, and uh, they ended up overcoming teams that had beaten them in the past, like New England, uh, you know, the hated Brady, and uh, and winning the Super Bowl. And so they, they won it all last year, the 50th Super Bowl, Peyton's last year, you know, the sheriff goes out in style. It was awesome. And it was fun to watch the games again, though, but it was very different because we knew the outcome, you know. And so for Wendy, it was actually more enjoyable to watch them the second time because she was not nervous that, you know, Peyton was going to lose. And so she knew what was coming. And so she was looking forward with expectancy and hope in the outcome of this series that we already knew the outcome, right? And, uh, but, but it's a totally different when you know the outcome, right? And there's a certain joy there that's different, uh, than when you're actually living through it, right? But, and, uh, so, so the anticipation of the winning of the Super Bowl in some ways was even sweeter the second time through. And as Graham prayed, God already knows the outcome, okay? And we already know the outcome. And so our hope is not like hope in watching the Super Bowl last year. It's like our hope in watching the Super Bowl this year that we already know the outcome. And the first Sunday of Advent is about that. It's about hope. It's about something that is going to happen, something happening that's looked for, that's expected, that's anticipated. And now we know that our hope is different. As I said, that we already know the outcome, but we still don't know exactly how God's promises are going to play out, even in our own life. We know that God has us, right? You know, again, as Graham said, God's got it, right? That's that's Graham's version of the sovereignty of God. God's got it, right? That's God's sovereignty in, in his prayer is God's got it. And we know that, but we don't know exactly or when God is going to lay out his promises in our lives and, and redeem us in the way that we expect and hope to. And when we consider the Christmas story, not through any real fault of our own, but, but we often consider the Christmas story and we come to this time of Advent and hope and we consider it without as much anticipation or expectation as we do, you know, like a previously recorded football game because we already know the outcome. And so we come into Christmas and we know it's going to end up with a baby in a manger, right? And so we already know the outcome. And, and when you're thinking about that, when you're watching a movie or watching TV series you've already seen before, there's actually a word for it. It's called dramatic irony. It's when the audience knows something that the characters don't know, right? It's when you're watching a movie or you're watching a TV show and you sort of got the gist of the plot or you've seen it before and you're thinking, do not go into the woods at night, Right? Because you know something that they don't know. That's dramatic irony. Or, you know, you're thinking, like, okay, if you talk to that girl, you know that the girl that you like is going to see you talking to her and she's going to misunderstand. And there's going to be like 40 more minutes of trying to resolve that before you get back together again at the end of the movie, right? You know, or you think, do not go out on that river. Because in a movie, if there's a river, there's a waterfall. It's guaranteed, right? So that's dramatic irony, is knowing 
what, what the actors or what the characters don't. And the problem with the Christmas story is that as Christians, on this side of the Christmas story, on this side, we have all the dramatic irony, right? We, we know everything that's going to go on, that there will be a baby in a manger, that, that Christ will come, the Messiah will arrive. And so the problem with that is we fail to appreciate it, what it must have been like to be an Israelite looking forward to the arrival of their Messiah. Because their Messiah was promised for a long time, right? There was a promised one. There was a Redeemer coming. There was an expectancy in the nation of Israel that God would send his Messiah, the chosen, the anointed one. And we don't really get a picture of how, for instance, every pregnant woman in Israel could have wondered, is it a boy? And if it's a boy, is it the Messiah? Because they were waiting for the Messiah to come. And they expected that God would deliver. And so today as we consider the anticipation or the expectation or the hope of the Messiah, it may be helpful to try to consider it again. And bear with me here, forgetting if you can. Just try and forget that we know the ending. right? Consider the promise of the Messiah as God revealed it to and through his people. And try and consider this progressive revelation of Israel's Messiah through all of the Old Testament as the people of Israel understood it, or as God's people understood it, even before there was a nation of Israel, right? At some times in Israel's history, the anticipation of the Messiah's coming was great and immediate, and then at other times in their history, the expectation and anticipation waned. And in many instances, Israel's hopes seemed to be dashed on the rocks of the circumstances. And as we go through this, I want you in the back of your mind also to think about our hope and our expectation of God's deliverance in our own lives and how, in some ways, how we hope and expect God to deliver in our ways is how God has delivered in the story and in the bringing of the Messiah. Let's pray. Father God, we're going to look into your word and I just pray that the Holy Spirit would be upon us and that as we set our hearts in anticipation for the Messiah, pretending just for a minute that we don't know when he's coming, or how he's coming, or in what circumstances. But we're going to follow along with your people and see how their hope was set, that you would send a redeemer, that you had an anointed one that would come and return your people to you so that we would never have to be separated from you again. I pray that you would set this hope and this expectation in our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So we're going to go through the whole Old Testament in 30 minutes. starting with hope of the Messiah in Genesis. And just follow along with me here. I don't have slides. I just want you to listen to the sound of my voice and hear what I'm saying, and I will try and be as clear as I can as we go through the anticipation of Israel's Messiah. So God's story of hope and anticipation begins in Genesis 1 and 2. God had created the universe, which included all the living things and mankind as the crown of his creation. And now if Adam and Eve had obeyed God there in the Garden of Eden on the one prohibition, just don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, says in Genesis 2, then they could have lived eternally in fellowship with God. But Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and their disobedience caused the fall of mankind from the immediate grace of God into a state of sin with profound implications that they could not have fathomed the implications 
of their sin. And now what's important to note here is that God's immediate action towards this rebellion of mankind is not just to immediately wipe the earth and start over. Our God's reaction to our sin was in fact to step in and immediately offer hope. And I want you to remember that. That as we stumble, as we fall, as we sin against God, His reaction is to immediately offer hope. And you're thinking, where is that coming from in Genesis? The first action of God in response to our sin is to set all of creation on a course towards redemption and restoration and hope. It says in Genesis 3, 14 to 15, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is the first promise of Jesus in the Bible, right there in chapter 3. I mean, we messed up so fast, but God was even faster in immediately putting into place a plan to fix it. And this verse does not explain why some people are creeped out by snakes, okay? That's not the purpose of that verse. The purpose of that verse is to explain that there is an offspring of Eve who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And theologians call this the proto-evangelium. It is the the pre-evangelism. It's the good news that an an offspring of Eve is going to eventually strike Satan's head, even as at the same time Satan appears to wound this offspring. And so the destruction of Satan and thus the deliverance of man gives hope to Adam and Eve even in their punishment. And so there's Adam and Eve who have just stumbled and fell into sin and are hiding from God and separated from His grace and God immediately steps in and gives them hope and says, Eve, you're going to have an offspring who's going to crush this serpent. God's message is a message of hope from the beginning. And so we have the first anticipation of the Messiah in Genesis chapter 3. And so then, when you think now, remember, you don't know how this goes yet. You know, you're with me. You're back here in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Don't pretend you know all the Bible. You don't, okay? Stick with me. So then their first son is born because Adam and Eve have this promise from God that an offspring of Eve is going to crush the head of this serpent. It's going to set things right again. There's going to be destruction of the enemy. And so when their first son is born, there must have been all this great joy between Adam and Eve. Because God has promised that an offspring is going to bring hope. And there's perhaps anticipation that this promise is already coming to pass here with their first son. God said it was Eve's offspring. And then there was another son. And so they're thinking maybe either Cain or Abel would be the means of fulfilling God's promise. And so then you can imagine the horror to discover that Cain had in fact killed his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4. How could the seed of the woman save mankind when one was killing the other? The righteous son was dead and the other son was a murderer. So where's God's promise of hope? What hope could they look forward to? But then in God's grace, he gives them another son, Seth, right? Who would eventually be the fulfillment of God's promise, right? Seth must have inspired hope in his parents, but optimism could only go so far because by Genesis chapter 6, the whole human race had become corrupt. And God had to spare just Noah and his family out of all humanity or all of humanity would have been wiped out in the flood. And then after the flood, these flaws show up in this family of Noah, the supposedly righteous family of Noah. All these flaws show up in his family. They don't offer much hope either. 
Righteous Noah gets knockout drunk in his tent and the rest of his family take advantage of him while he's sleeping it off. This is where God is going to bring forth hope from these guys. And then in chapter 11 of Genesis, the whole world rebels against God and he scatters them into many nations, but God starts again with Abraham. And God gives Abraham another promise. God promises to bless all these different nations of the world through one man. This is what God says and offers hope again. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, here it is again. There will be an offspring. There will be a seed of Abraham. There will be from Abraham a great nation and eventually all the nations will be blessed through this seed of Abraham. And things look good with Abraham to start out. Still looking for this Messiah who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, right? This offspring of Eve. And now we're all the way down to Abraham and things look good. Abraham was successful. He waged wars with the kings around him, people who had captured his nephew Lot in Genesis 14. He even turned down the spoils of war that were offered to him by pagan kings. And then when he meets an unknown king, Melchizedek, who was a priest of the Most High God, Abraham offers tithes to this priest Melchizedek, being a type or an archetype of Christ to come, we learn in Hebrews 5 and 7. And so hope for the Messiah is high here. Abraham has a promise, a direct promise from God that he will be the father of nations who will bless the earth. And so maybe here is God's promise coming true. He had this promise who could, of an offspring who could maybe be this Messiah or lead to the Messiah. But then hope wanes again with Abraham. Abraham and Sarah are old and they don't have a son and they don't have much hope of having a son. And so they try to speed up God's promise and help it along by Abraham trying to have a son with Sarah's servant Hagar, uh, her handmaid, and that son eventually had to be sent away. That wasn't going to work. And then a few times Abraham was even willing to give his wife and allow her to be added to the harem of kings, pagan kings like Pharaoh, and Abimelech, and so if she did have a son, there would be some question as to whether this was actually the son of promise from Abraham because she's in this harem with pagan kings. And so the hope for the Messiah is on the wane here again. And when God does give Abraham and Sarah the child Isaac, God puts his promise to the supreme test. He orders Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, on whom all of Abraham's hopes are placed. And so we have this scene of Abraham on the mountain about to sacrifice his son, and it's a deliberate picture of God the Father and of Christ. Right? That God is painting a picture here of the Messiah that is promised through Isaac. Abraham is a type of the Father who will on Calvary sacrifice his beloved and only son. And Isaac is an archetype or a picture of the Son of God who willingly and obediently obeys the will of his Father, even if it means his death. So we have this hope of a Messiah again in Isaac. And from Isaac we move on to Jacob, who's a schemer and a deceiver and who was really only found faithful later on in his life. And then Jacob's sons are even worse than him. Reuben slept with his father's concubine and the brothers of Joseph were violent and jealous. You remember, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery expecting him to be killed, right? And then 
Judah, the eldest brother, was a frequenter of prostitutes, and so there wasn't a whole lot of hope in the Messiah in that bunch, but Jacob, at the end of Genesis, finally prophesies of Judah. Sorry, I said Judah was the eldest. He's not the eldest. He's the fourth son. But he prophesies of Judah in Genesis 49. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples or of the nations. And so out of this ragtag bunch of scallywags, there is this prophecy, this blessing again onto the line of Judah that he will be the king. And from his line will be a line of kings. And so there's hope again for this Messiah in the line of Judah, who eventually leads to Jesse, who is the father of King David. But we're not there yet. Stick with me. We're still looking forward as a nation expectantly for this Messiah that God has promised, promised to Eve, promised to Abraham, promised to Isaac, promised to Jacob, promised now through Judah, looking forward to this hope that there is some end to this sin and this separation from God. But it's not to be yet. 400 years of slavery in Egypt first, And then they escape by Moses and then near extermination again by God at Mount Sinai. But instead, the patience of God shows itself by providing the law to cover over their sins temporarily. It tells us in Romans chapter 3 that God, who is going to wipe them out, says, okay, I'm going to give you the law and the law is going to allow me to have the patience to overlook your sins temporarily until my Messiah comes. And then 40 more years in the desert before they get to the promised land. And then we could go into the book of the law, and I'm not going to do that this morning. You can breathe a sigh of relief because there is so much in the law. You can look in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The law tells us so much about the messianic hope and who the Messiah is going to be and what his purpose is. All of the law points to the Messiah, Jesus. But I'm just going to stick with the history. And so then we look at out of the Pentateuch or out of Genesis, we, we move to the messianic hope that's found during the period of Judges and Kings. In the books of Joshua and Judges and Ruth, there's actually not a great emphasis on the coming of the Messiah. In the book of Ruth, as we looked at a couple of years ago, Boaz is pictured as an archetype of Jesus, the Messiah, in his role as the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. Ruth being a Gentile who had faith in the God of Israel. And Boaz as a man who would put his covering over her and bring her into his household as a kinsman redeemer. And so we have this picture of the Messiah in Boaz. But of course, this period of of, uh, judges and kings, the, the people of Israel then wandered again from God. And as their land was divided, they looked again for their Messiah. And so because there was no Messiah, Israel demanded from God that they have a king. And their first king, Saul, quickly proved to be less than ideal. He was not the king that was going to lead them or be the king that they needed. And he was uh, an impressive man physically, but he was weak in character. And so God rejected him and replaced him with David, a man after his own heart. And finally, in some sense, David gave Israel a taste of what the ideal king could possibly be like. 
or at least an earthly king. And God told His people that through David that their true king was still to come. Remember, it's Eve and then Seth and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and now to David. And in 2 Samuel 7, we read, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. Still a promise of a human Messiah to come. And I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So the prophet Samuel again gives this prophecy to David. A promise for David's sons and future sons. That you're going to build a temple. And Solomon certainly built a temple. But Solomon wasn't the Messiah either. Right? Nor was Rehoboam. Right? David's immediate sons were not the Messiah. And so Israel is left still hoping. Still in anticipation. Still in expectation. Now, for this point probably 1500 years sorry 2500 years they've been expecting this messiah but samuel says to david you have an eternal throne coming it will never depart from your offspring and from that time on the messiah would be known as the son of david And as you go forward from that time, there's many beautiful messianic promises written about Jesus in the Psalms. You could look at Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Psalm 45, Psalm 72, Psalm 110. All these Psalms talk about the eternal king, the suffering servant, the reign of God's chosen Messiah. But the people of Israel are still in hope. They're still expecting this Redeemer to come. So then we can look at the messianic hope of the people of Israel in the time of the prophets. You have Elijah and Elisha and Jonah, and they were prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel. And each of these prophets anticipates the coming of the Messiah in their own way. Elijah was a type of John the Baptist, who was to prepare the way of the Lord. We read that in Luke 1-7. It says of John the Baptist, He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so in the time of the prophets, you have Elijah going forward, preparing the people the way that John the Baptist eventually would for the Messiah to come. And then Elisha typified or was an archetype of Jesus himself who came after Elijah and who manifested an even greater power in the spirit than Elijah had. And then Jonah, who was the disobedient prophet, was sort of a double archetype, a double sign. He was a sign both of Israel in disobedience in his refusal to go where God told him to go. But he was also a symbol and a type of the Messiah in his death, burial, and resurrection as Jonah was in the fish for three days and so Jesus would be in the grave just three days. You remember, Jesus says, I will give them the sign of Jonah. And so in the time of prophets, we have this picturing of the Messiah to come. And then in the prophets to the southern kingdom of Judah, you have Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and those guys. And these prophets look forward to the time when Judah would be driven from the land and taken captive of Babylon. And Jeremiah speaks of the Messiah as the offspring of David who would reign as a righteous branch, 
who would gather the scattered flock of Israel and restore righteousness and justice in the land. And Micah spoke of Israel's restoration and the righteous reign of the Messiah who would be born in Bethlehem. We're getting even more detail now about who this Messiah is to come. He's going to be a shepherd. He's going to gather. He's going to restore. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. But it's through Isaiah that we have the clearest picture of the coming Messiah. It's through Isaiah that God rebuked his people for their sin, and then the people still go through all their religious rituals, but they practice injustice and violence, and they have no mercy or compassion on the helpless or on the orphan or on the widow. And so the nation of Israel at this time is rich. They're affluent, but they are oppressive and they are proud. And because of their sin, God is going to judge the nation and send them into exile and then later on restore them. And God is going to use the nations as instruments of judgment on Israel, but then it will be the Messiah who will finally and fully deliver His people and restore them. And so the hope of the Messiah is established again in Isaiah. Isaiah 7 where he writes, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So there's going to be a sign from God, Isaiah says. There is a sign of this Messiah coming. Not that a young woman will have a baby, because young women have babies all the time. That's not a sign from God. There's nothing unusual about that. But the sign is is that a virgin will bear a son. And he will be God with us. And not only that, but he will eat curds and honey, which is interesting. Later on, we we see in Isaiah's writing that, that curds and honey is food that is eaten during times of oppression or poverty. And so a virgin is going to give birth. And this Messiah is going to be born into poverty. And he's going to come, and when he comes, it won't be like you expect. It's going to be a teenage girl, a poor teenage girl, is going to have a baby. And he's going to eat the food of the oppressed. And then in chapter 9, Isaiah turns from the judgment of Judah to the restoration, which will be accomplished by this Messiah. He says in Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so Isaiah, now speaking of this Messiah, He builds on the prophecies and the promises that came before it. From the seed of Eve will eventually come a Savior, and from Abraham will come a son, and this son will be in the line of Judah, who will be in the line of kings, in the line of the throne of David. Isaiah builds on all of that. And now this human lineage of the Messiah will come to pass. But for the first time now, Isaiah reveals something new. He says he will also be Mighty God, Eternal Father. So now, in some not yet understood way, the Messiah of promise is going to be born and be both man and God. And that this God-man is going to sit on the throne of David and establish an eternal kingdom of justice and righteousness. Like, we can only imagine 
Like, we're on this side of it, right? So we already know we have all the dramatic irony. But can you imagine the godly men and women of Israel who are racking their brains over this prophecy, right? They've been, they've been waiting. They, they, got the, they, got the law, they got the books of Moses memorized, right? They know what God said to Eve. They know what God said to Abraham. They know what was said to Isaac and Jacob and through Samuel to David. They know that there is a king coming, a final Messiah who is going to redeem them as a people. And now Isaiah says that he's going to be mighty God, eternal father. How could they have read and reread and worked over and pondered this prophecy? And what a profoundly unexpected revelation about their Messiah. Because they were just looking for an earthly king. And now Samuel's saying he's going to be mighty God too. And then in Isaiah 11, Isaiah goes on. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is King David's father. So there will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit and counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is the Messiah that's coming. The expectancy at this point in the story, just record levels, right? That Israel is expecting their Messiah. And then in Isaiah 49, we see the inclusion of the Gentiles again as promised to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed. And then in Isaiah 52 and 53, you know, they go further into the prophecies that this Messiah is going to suffer. And he's going to die an atoning death in order to secure his people and his throne. So that's the messianic hope in the time of the prophets. It's reaching this peak of, of who he's going to be. And then finally, just before Jesus arrives, two prophets in particular, Zechariah and Malachi, speak of the Messiah to the Israelites who had returned to their land after their exile because, because the Messiah still wasn't there. Right? They still got exiled, 70 years in Babylon, you remember? Okay, so they're still not there yet. And they get back from the exile. They're still wondering, where is this Messiah? Where is this hope that's been promised? And Zechariah and Malachi speak of the Messiah after the exile. And the details of his coming become even more clear. And he's so close, unknown to them at the time, but he's so close. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And so now the broad outline of the messianic promise has been really filled in. 
And so Israel knows now, and we know now as we are reading along here through the Old Testament, that the Messiah is going to be an offspring of Eve, of course. And in the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and specifically within the line of Judah, and specifically will sit on the throne of David, a virgin, born, a virgin birth in the city of Bethlehem, introduced by a prophet like Elijah, and presented to his people riding on the foal of a donkey, and he will strike like a rod with the words of his mouth, and a new righteousness that convicts people of their injustice. But he will offer forgiveness by offering himself as a sacrifice, because he's the suffering servant. So now as I've been telling that story, the whole span of, and I couldn't get it all in there even close, but but just the highlights of God's promise of the coming Messiah. Can you imagine over those roughly 5,500 years, the expectancy of the people of Israel, the expectancy of them as their hopes increased and decreased, as they waxed and waned, as they grew closer to God and farther from God, and the promise of the Messiah was always there that God would redeem them. Have you been able to sort of suspend your dramatic irony just for like 15 minutes to kind of join in that hopefulness, that expectancy that we can just barely imagine of a whole nation for thousands of years desiring their Messiah to come, to anticipate with hope with Israel the Messiah that God promised and the long, long wait that they had for this promise to come to pass. Israel's anticipation and expectance, Israel's hope in God's promised Savior, it rose and it fell, it was imminent and then it was dashed, and yet the Messiah came. He did come, and he came at the right time, and he came where he was needed, and he came unexpected. And the same is true of our own hope in God's redemption and salvation and circumstances in our lives. Because just as we look forward with hope and expectancy to Christmas and we celebrate the arrival of our hope in the form of Jesus and where he was going to the cross, in our own lives, like you're with me on this, right? We go through seasons in our life where our hope is in God and our hope and our expectancy for God's deliverance of us in our own lives, it waxes and wanes, right? Like there are those seasons when we see that God is bringing his redemption and he is healing and he is bringing us hope and we are so expectant of that hope to come and are just waiting for God to bless. And then there's other times where it feels like in our life like that hope is so far away and we are so far away from God and I don't know when God is finally going to deliver me out of this. And so we can see that as Israel went through their history and they were hoping for that Messiah, we go through our life in parallel and we go through those same peaks and valleys and we have that hope and expectation of deliverance and we're wondering when is our Messiah, our hope, going to arrive? And we can look at Jesus and remember that God's promises always come to pass and they come to pass at exactly the right time in the right place, for the right reason, for God's purposes and his glory. And so there was a reason. There were things that God was doing, and can't go into all that as a whole other sermon, but, but there are things that God was doing all those times, right? The offspring of Eve was not going to be Cain or Abel or Seth or Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or Jesse or David. 
There wasn't going to be any of those. He had the Messiah coming. We look forward in expectancy to it. We have to have patience in our hope. Right? We don't understand patience, I don't think, anymore. Right? I, I'm still, you look at me and you think I'm pretty young, but I grew up in an age, and most of you will know, some of you will remember this. If you wanted to go to the movies and find out what movies were on, you had to look in a newspaper. You know what a newspaper is? <laughs> you know, and if for some reason you didn't have a newspaper, then you had to phone the theater to find out when the movies were. Right? And they only had one line. So you would phone the theater and hope they answered. If not, if somebody else was trying to phone the theater to find out when the movie was on, you got a busy signal. And so you just had to keep redialing. But you couldn't just hit redial because you had a rotary phone, right? So you had to actually dial the all seven numbers back in again. That was the one good thing is you only had to use seven numbers, not ten, back in those days. But if you, but if you, but that, that's what it was, right? Or if you heard a song and you wondered who sang it, you had to just wait until you remembered. Somebody had to remember who sang that song or what movie it was in. You know, if, if you wanted information, you had an encyclopedia in your home or you went to the library. Now you have virtually all the information that matters in the world on your phone. Right? We just don't understand patience anymore. They, you know, even, even now when I'm on my phone, if I hit a link and it takes more than six seconds, I'm just like, forget it. I don't even have the... I'm not going to wait for that page to load, right? You know, they say that attention spans that previously had been higher than 12 seconds just a decade ago are now dropping below 8 seconds. That's where our patience is at. Our attention spans are now dropping below 8 seconds. I'm just going to test that. Bear with me here. One steamboat, two steamboat, three steamboat, four steamboat, five steamboat, six steamboat, seven steamboat, eight steamboat. That was 8 seconds. Right? And some of you are like, okay, he's at two. I got time to check mail because I don't have to pay attention again until he gets to eight. Right? Like people, eight seconds is it. We don't understand patience. But God has taught us, God is showing us, be patient. My hope is coming. My hope is for you. When you sinned, when you fell away from me, my first action was to put into place a plan for hope. And you may think it is slow coming, but God says it is coming at the right time. Jesus came thousands of years after the promise. And it may be thousands of years more before he comes again. I don't know, but God's timing is perfect for his purposes. And right now you're waiting in your life. You're waiting for God to bring hope to you, whether it's hope in illness or hope in marriage or hope in finances or hope in relationships or hope with your children. Whatever it is, you are expectantly looking forward to hope in God and just know, be patient, God's hope is coming at the right time for you. And God's hope is coming where it is needed. Jesus came into a completely broken and weak kingdom of Israel. At the point in history when Jesus finally shows up, forget judges, forget kings, forget all of that stuff, Israel was basically a tribute-paying pauper state to the Roman Empire. And spiritually, it was empty. Israel was completely broken and impoverished, physically and spiritually, and that is the Israel that Jesus came into. He came at exactly the right time, exactly where he was needed. God's hope comes 
in the areas of poverty in your life, his hope will come there. And it will not come how you expect it. We have ideas of of what and how we want God to deliver us, right? The nation of Israel was the same way. They had great ideas about how they wanted their Messiah to come. They hoped for a king like David, that he was going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire and that that he was going to establish a new kingdom on earth and that it was going to make them king of the world again. But when God's hope came, it came in a completely unexpected and unlooked for way. Born of a virgin in a stable, to impoverished parents who couldn't even afford a sacrifice. Two turtle doves, it says, they took to the sacrifice. The offering of the impoverished. Jesus comes at the right time. He comes where he is needed. And God's hope comes not how you expect, but it absolutely is what is required in your life. And so as we go into this Christmas season, I just wanted this morning, I just wanted to recapture for just a minute that sense of expectancy that the nation of Israel had. That sense of expectancy of a Messiah coming that God was going to redeem. And how long they had to wait. But when that Messiah came, oh, he fulfilled all the promises and more. And so in your own life, wherever you are hoping for God to deliver, wait patiently upon him because his hope will come. And he will deliver on his promises like you can never imagine. Let's pray.